welcome to my podcast. Oh, thank you. Yes, great to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be on my podcast, David. And um, how I like to begin the podcast is to ask my guests to introduce themselves. You know, just give us an idea of who you are, what makes you tick, what's, what great things you're up to. So to get the, the um, podcast started. And just before you go into that, um, as you, I know your lovely wife, Carol, yes. and, and you know the mysterious and magical way we met, which was years ago, um, and, it, and it happened so spontaneously. And after I, you know, after I met her, it turned out, you know, I had, I was just planning a trip to Australia and I went to Australia and I actually went to Summer's house, Mowgli. Mm -hmm. And at the time you guys lived right next door. So I could have met you in person back in the day, but that was years ago. And uh, it seems like, you know, with with technology, you know, we've kind of circumvented the person-to-person meetings, you know, across the globe. And and it's still just ex- as exciting, you know. And I Maybe. think I met your partner um, that you produced this documentary with, uh, John, mm-hmm. in Edmonton at a conference. And that could be, that could, yes. Yeah, so I, I think I met him in person at the conference, and and um, Summer was there as well. So we're we're all connected. We're all interconnected. Yes. I feel. Yes, it's such a yes, mysterious, right. yeah, wonderful world that that we live in. Mm, totally. So I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell us how you came about doing this documentary. Mm. Well, Angelina, thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having me on and uh, to be telling a little bit of this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I was born in southern Queensland and the southern Darling Downs on the Condamine River, the river that flows into the Darling and eventually the Murray. So it's the the top end of the biggest water system in Australia. And uh, I grew up on a farm there. We were a very um, uh, sort of pious community there. And uh, I found that in my later teens that that wasn't going to be the lifestyle for me, and I moved away. Uh, And eventually, uh, many years later, I I came to Adelaide, after a number of other careers, you might say, mm-hmm. um, to start filmmaking. It was at the time when digital uh, digital filmmaking was just happening. The Apple computers for the first time were, you were able to uh, um, uh, plug in a, a video camera and edit it. And overnight, you know, this, this ability to tell video stories and make films yourself uh, became available to ordinary people uh, like me, you know, without having a massive amount of financial investment. But 
growing up on the farm, I always had the sense that there was there had been someone there before us. I, you know, it wasn't talked about. Uh, we were quite ignorant uh, and unaware of um, Aboriginal people, First Nations people at that time, and so this sort of became like something that worked on my sort of consciousness for for a long time, always wondering. And then when I many years later moved to Adelaide, uh, having met Carol, who you mentioned before, my my wife, she was working with um, young mums um, in crisis here in Adelaide. And uh, I uh, I moved to Adelaide and um, uh, with a view to starting to make documentaries. I'd been teaching before that. And um, and she already had an established sort of relationships with many First Nations groups in the community. And, uh, and th- that opened the way eventually and through John Hartley, who you mentioned earlier, uh, who was one of the one of the two brothers um, in the in the documentary Two Brothers Walking. He had been working with Carol. He'd also done some work with Vicky Vicky Whalen, um, uh, yeah, who had been here on an exchange program from Alberta. And he had visited over um, visited Canada and met with Cree Nation people. And um, you know, I have to say that for all the people I've spoken to in Adelaide, there who who, who um, visited Canada on those exchange programs, that had a profound influence on what was happening um, here in Australia. Um, and so. When um, Kevin Rudd, our then Prime Minister, apologised for uh, the the stolen children um, and a whole, you know, racist institutional approach to, you know, I couldn't say care for children uh, because it wasn't caring at all. Um, But through that apology process, um, John had met Murray George, a senior Pittenjara man from Central Australia, and um, they started to work together. And since I knew John, uh, he invited me to go up with a group of uh, union secretaries. Uh, sort of a delegation was going up because there was a sense that the, the union movement hadn't really supported uh, First Nation causes for quite some time, and so they went up just for a for a listening exercise, really, and asked me to come along uh, and be a be a um, you know videographer for that for that trip. And so I met Murray George and Wichity George and Ginger Wiggledeary and a lot of the senior men and women at that time. Yeah. And at that stage, we didn't know that we were making a, a documentary as such. I really didn't know much about any of that, to tell you the truth. And uh, But it was speaking to that yearning in me from my earliest days of wondering, you know, who had been in this country uh, before us whitefellas arrived. Because I knew the story about, you know, it was my grandfather who 
who came to that that black soil country on the Darling Downs, and um, we knew that there'd, it had been a sheep station before that, but there was a there was an absence of history there that you know bothered me really. And so as I'd sort of be walking around the farm, it was quite a big farm. It was about something under 2,000 acres there on the river. Um, you know, I'd be looking for signs of, you know, people who came before us and never really seeing anything. So when the opportunity came, you know, I grabbed it with both hands. And we travelled extensively then, John, Murray and myself, um, maybe 30,000 kilometres over the coming years, uh, visiting communities, talking to people, uh, always about culture and what we felt, you know, needed to happen in Australia to bring, you know, these 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 um, ideas and the conditions that many people were living in to the to the fore. Um, and for me, it was really a process of just learning about Australia's deep history. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. Um, <laughs> that's sort of that sort of come about, and I continue to to work with um, with John in particular, mm. who has now moved back up to his country in in the wet tropics of northern Queensland. Mm. And um, you know, I make a couple of trips up there each year, and we're doing. We're doing virtual tours of country from satellite and drone photos and then embedding stories of country and people and community within that. Um, and so it's I've moved somewhat away from the, from the straight documentary, the linear documentary, into a sort of a more place-based mm. storytelling. Yeah. It's a natural, yeah. organic progression, right? Well, it is, I think. And, you know, when when Murray George said to me, um, in you know, in the earlier days, I'd ask him lots of questions. I was like a two-year-old asking questions or three-year-old asking questions, you know. And uh, he said to me, um, uh, you know, everything comes out of country, out Chukupa. So this word chukupa, I was wondering what that was. And and we don't have an English equivalent because chukupa is the stories, the creation stories, the law, L-A-W and the L-O-R-E, law, and the ways of being and the worldview and it's a full meaning, you know, encompassing mm. many, many aspects of life in a holistic sort of a way. And I think that's probably why we don't have an equivalent word because we don't really think holistically. Mm. But he would say, you know, everything comes out of country. Language comes out of country. You know, culture comes out of country. People come out of country. I said to him, well, what about whitefellas? What about Pirinpa? <laughs> and he said, well, no, it doesn't matter. He says, if you're born on, if you're born in this country, you're born under this, born from this chukupa. Okay. You mightn't might, mightn't know it, but it doesn't make any difference. Um, you're still born from this same chukupa, from this yeah. same spirit of the country. Yeah. 
But if you uh, want to learn more about it, well, then we can help you. And that was a sort of a, an example of the just the, the 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 grace and generosity of the man, you know. Yeah. Well, what I what I picked up from the film, which really kind of struck a chord in me, was when John says, um, someone says to him, "You're not Aborigine." Because he always identified as an Aborigine. And someone said, well, you're not. And he said, what? What do you mean? Like he couldn't understand the statement that somebody would say he wasn't an Aboriginal, um, an Aborigine. And uh, and the guy that said that says, well, you're white. Your skin Mm. is white. You're not black. You know, and I think that offended him to his core. Absolutely. yeah, and it really comes through in that that segment of the documentary, and I mm. and I really felt it, and it reminded me, you know, when I first moved to Ottawa, which is the capital here, um, mm-hmm. I I was working at the Assembly of First Nations, which is the political group for Indigenous people. I was the advisor for the National Chief Ovid Mercury at the time. And I was talking with, you know, a few people, my colleagues, and one of them was talking about Indigenous people and saying certain things. And I looked at him and I said, how do you know that? Like, you're not a First Nations person. And he just looked at me with that same kind of look that John had. And he yeah. said, he says, um, I am a, a, an Aboriginal person. And, you know, he was white, blue eyes, and he spoke with a French accent. But in the East here, there's a lot of First Nations people that are are very fair and blue eyes and speak with a French accent because yeah. that, but there's nonetheless still the First Nations person. And I learned from that moment never to make an assumption on people's, who they say they are. Yes. Um, and contradict them. Like I never, since that very day, I've never said to somebody or even thought it in my head that they're not mm. an Aboriginal person. I just accepted what they said as who they said they were and left it at that. And I think, you know, more people need to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, um, and that makes me uh, just um, remember uh, for myself, when I came to Adelaide, I was really looking to connect with with uh, my what who I thought Aboriginal people were, and you know, people living Aboriginal culture. And I, 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 um, you know, had assumed that these would be people living in the bush. Um, and and the first group of people I met in Adelaide were really. People who had been live, who had grown up on missions and had been, you know, living in the city for some time, and I had made the assumption that the culture had gone with it. Right. That, you know, they were assimilated people and were basically living a a a Western worldview. And I remember talking to this old lady, and 
I don't remember what it was she said, but what we were talking about, but it dawned on me as we were talking that those assumptions were all wrong, that that I, you know, it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter what job you have or, you know, the way you dress or anything. This idea of, uh, the, you know, it you, you don't have to be any particular thing you know, to be an Aboriginal person. And uh, what's more, I discovered that the traditional kinship connections and the way of looking at the world, they were all happening here in Adelaide. They were they were somewhat beneath the surface for a white fella like me, um, and I didn't have the eyes to see it. It was a bit like what Murray was saying, you know, that doesn't make any difference. It's still there, whether you can see it or not. Mm. And so I started to learn um, how to change my my view of it, really, and to start to see, um, you, know, you know, beneath the surface a little bit. And as I had the opportunity to meet more people and have more conversations and sat around more campfires, the, you know that um, I, I found that my whole worldview started to shift mm-hmm. um, to the extent now that at some stage I went looking for where I came from in a different kind of way. I went looking back on the Condamine River and the places that I grew up, um, really uh, to find out who who I was and where I come from. I mean, I knew the I knew the stories that had come through my parents and grandparents. They were they weren't very involved stories. They were German immigrants and they were they were leaving. They came here to leave their homeland mm. uh, as much as to come here. They didn't know really what was in store for them here. And then there was of course the world wars and they being German and my dad growing up. You know, being a kid during the war, you know, that brought on a lot of um, uh, discrimination, I guess. Yeah. And a lot of trauma associated with that, and he never spoke about it. And and so I, it was hard for me to understand what what made things the way they were in our family as well. And so I was able to, you know, appreciate that sort of displacement, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not the same by any means. Um, but on a personal level, knowing the feeling of not belonging or being, being, um, uh, not knowing who you are, really, mm-hmm. I guess is closer to the point. Um, um, you know, I could see that happening where, where you know, family groups or communities were were were, were breaking down, um, and then I also was meeting people in the bush and having these amazing conversations around the, the campfire that you know just didn't happen in the city. There were conversations, you know, you sort of at breakfast on. You know, someone would rock up. I just sort of knew you were there. I'd been travelling around filming. And I'd just rock up and you'd start talking. And the conversations would be about 
what it was like to be a free person living on your own country. This is in Central Australia. Yeah. And they were conversations that you couldn't have in the city, you know. That just wasn't even a consideration. You were so busy, caught up in the in the humdrum busyness of the of daily affairs that you rarely would have the opportunity to take pause and think, well, who am I? What's what's my purpose? What am I doing here? Who 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 do I, who do I belong with? Yeah, and do you think do some of that that um, resistance, not really resistance, but some of that holdback on talking about that has something to do with the whole stolen children? And I think it's a process of colonization, yeah. Luna. Yeah, I think yeah. we. I think we're we're educated very early on to not think outside of particular silos. You know, this is sort of really the point I was making earlier about the holistic thinking of First Nations people and how Western Western cultures, Western derived cultures, European derived cultures, uh, put things in boxes and, you know, attempts to manage them and to, you know, harness them in some way, to use them up, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the orientation is really outside of oneself um, uh, in a way that um, can you know, leave you quite disconnected from other people and from country uh, from community and 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 everything really, you know, it's a very it's a very isolated existence for for you know white fellas living in the city compared with First Nations people for whom family and kinship and community is so so much so central yeah. to who you are. Yeah, it's and it's really, I mean, that's what makes it so rich, mm-hmm. right? Is you know, and you know, there's there's a lot of similarities with First Nations here in Canada and the Aborigines in Australia, and you know, one of the things that I found when I was there was exactly what you said: is that connection to family. And feeling that, you know, like with in Canada, um, in, in my, particularly in my culture, Denis Lucene, we normally, not, not all the time, I guess, but we respect elders like aunties and uncles. And even though they're not blood aunties and uncles, we still call them aunties and uncle and we afford them that same respect as we would if they were blood and I think that makes us you know like the human race you know when you have that full idea of connection to each other in a way that is in a context like family it kind of elevates us that's right I, I think that is the the natural condition. I mean, I grew up that same way um, on the farm. You know, the, 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 so this is in the in the fifties, early sixties. 
the um, the towns were, you know, seemed to be quite some distance away. It was still a dirt track to where we were living. It was considered a remote area. So, but there was a very strong, you know, community and particularly around the church. And, you know, every, every, we felt related to everyone. We called all the other uh, mothers, auntie, all the other fathers, uncle. Uh, and it was a natural way of, of being. And, uh, and when I left, um, you know, the, uh, the farm, uh, as I got older, that was something that it took a long time to, to come to terms with, you know, um, not having that family. I, I left, you know, some, I should say, under a cloud somewhat. Um, I, I, I didn't really felt I fit with the, with the, with the very strict religious aspect of it. Mm. And, um, it was, a it was a, you know, a take it or leave it sort of situation I felt at that time. Right. And, uh, and, and that was a great loss. And I think that's one of the things that propelled me, you know, looking for, looking for that family that I'd, that I'd left me, that, that extended family, um, that I'd left behind that, um, you know, as, as a, uh, non-believers, not quite the word, but, uh, something along those lines, um, you know, meant that I couldn't really, uh, remain part of that community. It was, right. um, yeah, it was, yeah, it just wasn't something that, that happened. Of course, the world has changed a lot now and those towns now are, are just, uh, you know, a few minutes drive away rather than something you did once or twice a month. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I guess the, and, and even, you know, speaking with you now, so, you know, in a different time zone, in a different country, you know, completely different season. Yes. From us. It's really quite amazing. It is. Yeah. I find that, you know, when I actually had a niece who your wife knew, um, and you probably knew her too, Maggie. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah, Maggie. And she passed away last year. But what she used to call me, I guess, what would be your late evening and my early morning. And uh, so we would touch bases. But it just kind of blew my mind when I thought about her calling me and and knowing that she was in this different country at a different season mm. and a different time zone. You know, and and it was quite interesting. One day she called and she said, um, oh, I'm just going to be reading this book. And she had a, had this book and she she told me the title of it. And I said, oh, I have that exact same book. And so I, I went to my my bookshelf and I pulled it from the bookshelf and I said, yeah, I'm holding it in my hand. And she mm. said. I'm holding my book in my hand and it's the same book you have. And it's, it was just, it just kind of blew our mind, you know, because like years ago we wouldn't have had that experience. That's right. Yeah. 
So it's yeah. Well, you know, um, when you were speaking before, one of the uh, made me remember something. When I soon after I came to Adelaide, I met Muggy Sumner, who also had been to uh, on exchange um, to to uh, Canada, and this was some years after he came back. He said to me a number of things that I found quite um, fascinating at the time. Uh, one was the conversations he had with a native Canadian people, and uh, one and he said I was talking to an old man one time who was, who asked him where he come from, and he said oh, I come from from Australia, you know. And the old man said, oh, yes, uh, we know about that. You're one of the old people. Mm. And that sort of sent shivers up me, you know, because I realised that, oh, there's this global communication of some sort, how it worked or what it was, I have no idea. Yeah. But somewhere within those First Nations cultures around the world, they knew about their connections and uh, mm -hmm. had access to knowledge that in a way is far beyond even this amazing technology that we're using right now. Absolutely, yeah. And so there's this, uh, this sense of a global global community, you know, our, our Canadian cousins, if you like, or Australian cousins, our... Um, you know, ultimately we're all one people. Mm. Yeah. It's the places we come from that make us look and see and uh, live differently, if you like. Yeah. But underneath that, we're all the same. It's so true. It's just our, our the context in which we, in how we speak is different mm. and our belief systems even our belief systems in some ways are quite similar across cultures and countries and differences, but the underlying factor is, is quite similar, I think. And I think the reason is because we're human. Yes. Right? That's right. And, and you know, culture and language and, you know, all those things are actually a way that we express ourselves in the in the outer world. But beneath that, our humanity, our human beingness, is is the same. You know, there's no there's no difference at all, really. Yeah, and I don't know why we we get so surprised about it. I remember when I was uh, studying at the University of of Warsaw. I remember sitting in class and I was looking around and it was a different language. Of course, it's Polish. Mm. And, but the students were exactly the same as the students at the university of Alberta. They looked yes. the same. They wore the same kind of clothes. Language was different for sure, but they were, they could, I mean, but it surprised me that, you know, cause I said to myself, these students are just like the students in Alberta. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was, but the one thing that was quite different about the Polish students, 
is their manners were different. Yes. Like I found, and I remember going to somebody's flat for dinner. And uh, after dinner, the wife said, oh, you should take Angelina back to her hotel. And I said, no, no, I'll just grab a taxi, whatever. And he says, no, no, you know, you're, you're a guest in our country. We will deliver you back safely to your hotel. And it, it was the time during the, um, the Iron Curtain, right? So I was behind the Iron oh, Curtain. Yes. So mm. the students, like when we were going back to the hotel through on the transit, they were stopped, I think, three or four times by police to show their, their papers. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and I remember walking towards the hotel and seeing on the street corner a number of like, you know, four or five soldiers on the corner. And I said, why do you have so much, you know, police out here, out on the street? And he said, oh, that's normal. They're there for our protection. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, so it's just really, really different. And, um, but similar, you know, it's quite, yeah. You know, the, the students were quite similar. They, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time just going in the countryside, you know, just, you know, touring palaces and museums. And But mm. that culture was really rich with, you know, with color and mosaics. And, yes. and it was just really, really lovely. When we went uh, and attended a number of concerts and that really surprised me as well because the concert tickets were just one American dollar oh, right. <laughs> for a full concert, you know. Yeah. And and um, going to the symphony was—I always thought, you know, like in Canada, it's always a special treat. Yeah. You know, it's not something you do like every week because um, mm. it's so expensive. And maybe one American dollar in Poland at the time in the late nineties was expensive, mm. you know, so it's all relative, yes. but it, it really is interesting how, when you're looking at the differences in culture and, you know, when I think of the Aborigines and the similarities, you know, with the stolen children um, and in Canada, we had the residential schools that was designed to eliminate our indigenous nature, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. literally just eliminate the language, the culture, and, you know, assimilate us. And fortunately, it didn't work. No. No, it did a lot of damage, and the damage is still with us, of course, but, you know, that, that it didn't it didn't reach the goal. In yeah. fact, my, the work that I'm doing now uh, with John up in the Mossman area, Gubliwara country, Gugliyalanji Nation, they uh, have language programs and they're happening all over Australia at this time of uh, sort of language rejuvenation programs. And um, <clears throat> I'd been working on a on a book with him doing the media side of a uh, a creation story book, and uh, you know, was visiting 
visiting up there. It's quite some distance from here in Adelaide. We're in South Australia, up to the north of Queensland. And I was visiting up there, and uh, uh, they had formed a community group. Um, um, it was a Kugli Alangi uh, language um, uh, consultative group. It's now a language and culture consultative group. And uh, the school had embraced this sort of this uh, this push for language, and uh, um, they were had were working with the with the community to bring language back. And to everyone's surprise, we found that there were young people in the in the community who could speak language, you know, quite fluently. They'd been taught by their grandparents. Right. But in the meantime, you know, it was so harshly dealt with that you, you know, would be beaten up or jailed for speaking your language. Yeah. Um, you know, many people spoke about this talking about, you know, walking down the street with a grandparent and he's talking to you in language and the police would come and, you know, mm-hmm. take him away, you know, wow. put him in jail for yeah. that. And so so it was quite an adjustment to make when now there was this sort of official um, initiative coming through the schools to reinstate um, First Nation languages. And uh, you know, it was it was it was uh, very reassuring to see how strong language still was in the community, even though it had gone underground. You know, yeah. And of course, that that didn't happen everywhere. Um, a lot of languages have been lost, mm. um, but but it's the first thing. It's the way back to culture and country. Really, it's part of that. You know, the language comes out of country as well. Absolutely, because I mean, when you're like, while I was watching the documentary, like the storytelling, right? You know, when when you're going through the storytelling of and using the traditional words to explain what the story to the children that we're watching, mm. like that's how you you have the connection. You have the connection through story and through yeah. the words, so that you know if the language carries the story. That's right. And I think you might be referring to that, that scene where uh, where there are some dancers, uh, uh, some older people and some young people. There was a Nintaka dance, the Goanna or mm-hmm. Parenti dance. Yeah. And then there's a couple of young boys and there's just a little clip of uh, Angana, who's uh, Murray's sister, and she talks about growing up and how they would be sleeping around the flickering fire. And, you know, every night there'd be someone telling them stories as they're falling asleep. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of have the sense of, you know, uh, the flickering of the fire being sort of mesmeric, you know? Yes. And yeah. These stories that are falling into your unconscious as you're going to sleep. And this happening night after night and how you would develop, you know, such a relationship with those stories. And, of course, the stories are all connected to particular places in the country and landforms in the country. Mm-hmm. 
from a very early age, you know, you develop this deep relationship with your with your country in the same way that you would with your grandmother or grandfather or or, or parents or you know aunties and uncles. Um, the tradition up there was that your mother's sisters were also your mothers, and your father's brothers were also your fathers. Right. Uh, it would be another generation or a step away before you would call them your uncles. So you're sort of, you know, really bathed in this sense of connection to everything that touches your life, you know. Yeah. And, uh, that's the first thing that, that is um, interrupted by, you know, colonising invasion forces, you know, they recognise that, uh, and we've mentioned stolen children a couple of times, you know, it's, it, it was a deliberate practice, really. Yeah. Well, um, I think... To, to destroy uh, culture. Yeah, and it... And it's really quite, I went to the museum in Adelaide and they had a whole exhibition on the stolen children. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember looking at, at, you know, the pictures of the young children that were stolen. And, um, and it really impacted me because I'm a residential school survivor. I was in... Mm-hmm residential school for seven years and so I could really feel what those like the empathy for those children in the photographs like this is just photographs right black and white photographs and Mm. and it you know so I I felt a connection to that part so part of you know and and the way I understand you know the aborigines like your spirit connects to the land and my spirit at that moment connected to the photographs in that museum, which is on the land, right? The Aborigine lands. And it creates a story for me being there. So my story now is woven into Australia. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, I, uh, as I was travelling with John and Murray and others and doing, you know, film work or, or whatever, um, I'd noticed that when pe- people met, they would always begin with, you know, who you are, where you come from, as as people do. But it would be, you know, what's your name, where's your country? Mm. And uh, then the next question would be, what's your dreaming? Mm. Someone might say, "Oh, yes, I'm I'm Malu dreaming, I'm kangaroo dreaming," and um, and then you know the person might say, "Oh, my brother's kangaroo dreaming. That must mean we're brothers too." <laughs> and so there would immediately be the whole kinship system would um, you know fall into place, and your relationships would be would be determined you know, by that first relationship and you would be related to everyone in, you know, in a particular way. Yeah. And you know, I was watching this and I thought, well, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm, I don't belong anywhere. You know, I felt it very, um, very, very, uh, very difficult. And then 
you know, after we'd been travelling some time, you know, I'd call John and Murray brother or I might call Murray Gooder, elder brother, um, you know, and, uh, and you know, some of that then would, would, would flow on. But I'd still have the problem was, well, where's your, where's your country? Yeah. Because I thought at that time that I didn't have country. Yeah. I thought that, you know, being a white fella meant that you you came, you know, from a place but you weren't connected to it. Even though what I felt was very much a connection to the place that I grew up. But as I'd said before, that that really wasn't a, a continuing or living connection. But I decided to to look back, um, you know, not that long ago, actually. Um, and because of the virtual tour work that I was doing, I was looking at geospatial information software and started to look at the Condamine River area where I grew up. And I started to understand the country in a different way. You know, we used to have regular floods there every two or three years. Um, we had where the systems could come from the north or the south. So it was a very reliable rainfall. And sometime, particularly in the summer, we would have these floods. And they were considered to be abnormal because mm. we were farmers, you know. They were troublesome. But then when I started to look at the country, I could see how the water channels, these little rivulets, you know, and in the black soil plains you could see the the pathways that the water took even when the paddocks were ploughed and cropped and what have you, they were they were permanent sort of little indentations in the floodplain. Mm. And I realised, oh, this 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 isn't dry country at all. This is this is an intermittent wetland. And and I started to understand why, you know, certain seasons we'd see jabaroos come down from the north, these these spectacular birds and and even in the driest parts of Australia, there's still intermittent wetlands. What's different is the cycle length. So, you know, it might be a 15-year cycle in, in parts of central Australia where it's yearly in other places and where I come from was two or three years. Mm. And so I developed this connection to country in a way that changed that longing I had had to be longing to to belong somewhere as a place, you know. And um and that sort of happened over a period of time. And it didn't matter that uh I'm, you know, third generation German migrant, uh because the humanity is the same and I come from that same place on the on the on the Condamine River and it and it radically changed the way I experience, uh, you know, identity and places of belonging, um, much more akin to, you know, First Nations connection to country. Right, right. And there's very few Aboriginal people left in that place there. I know that some of the stations, there were, there were some terrible massacres took place along the Grass Tree Creek. When the station houses were built there, they were built with rifle windows, you know. Yeah. So it was clear just from those things that there was warfare going on there. Though, of course, it was never called that. Um, 
and um, and in many places, places in Queensland, um, you just you know couldn't identify or you couldn't claim your First Nations connections. You know, mm-hmm. many people would say, "Oh no, I've, I'm you know my family's from India or Malaya or somewhere else," as a way of avoiding you know, the violent racism that was occurring there. But the, but the, um, you know, I have this sense now that returning to the place where we were born to find where our, where our chukupa comes from the earth or our ngujikura, what, you know, many words for it. Every Aboriginal language has a, has a word for this connection to the spirit of the country that gives us our life, you know. Yeah, and um, and and we all have it. Anyone who is alive has that life force that comes from somewhere on this planet, and it's a specific place. And once you once you know it and have a personal connection with it, it changes the way you you see humanity really. And brings us much closer to that place you were talking about before, where you know, beneath the colour of the skin, beneath the language, beneath the climate, you know, we've adapted to. Yeah. We're we're human beings. We're all just human beings, you know. Yeah. In that. I wonder if I wonder if the colonizers, when they, you know when they started colonizing, you know, Australia and Canada and other countries, I wonder if they thought about the richness of the culture. I mean, of course, they wouldn't have understood the language, but sometimes you don't need to understand the words to really feel what's happening. You know, Angelina, I don't think they did. I don't think they gave it a second thought. you know there were there were big conferences in in um in Europe in the 1800s remembering that there was you know all the different you know kings were part of the same family mm-hmm. um and uh, i was reading about uh, the german uh, bismarck and his his um yeah so this is the time of empire and these empires are made on other people's wealth. Right. You know, we see the British royal family or 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 the French or the Italian, you know, or any German, any country that had colonial um, activities around the globe. Well, there was there was conferences where this was all negotiated by European leaders. And they decided how they were going to carve up the rest of the colony, the rest of the globe, you know, in Africa or or Asia in particular, so that they wouldn't be fighting each other. Oh, yeah. And the yeah. colonising process was a very deliberate one uh-huh. and it was all about bringing wealth, stealing other people's wealth, really, and and, and calling it their own and... You know, we see the palaces and the castles and all that sort of stuff is really made from other people's wealth and other people's hard work, and it was just simply stolen and brought back to their country. And excuse me, with that, they were able to put themselves in a position of power and influence. 
And, uh, you know, we're still operating under that system. You know, in Australia here, we still have a British head of state. How does, how does that work? You know, King yeah. Charles III is our head of state. You know, yeah. bizarre, bizarre. And, and that sort of really, you know, is an indicator of, of how, th- how things fit. You know, there's, yes, there's, there's this, um, this sort of patronizing, you know, uh, care, you know, uh, for Australia and Australians and all that sort of, and the, and the First Nations people, there's all that, but really at the heart of it, is a is a great misunderstanding and at some stage you either identify with with the colonizers and you know a sort of the, the current you know world order if you like that uh, came out of America in the 60s or you identify with you know something something that's just, that's just deeper Something that First Nations people have known and held and maintained and nurtured for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. In the Australian case, but but elsewhere as well. Certainly in Canada and America and South America, everywhere, really. Because it's because it's actual it's actual factual knowledge, you know. It's not it's not spin. It's not yeah. It's not for the purpose of, um, you know, building an empire or privileging a certain class in society. It's actually has to do with where our life force originates and who we are as human beings. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I think, I think the, the interest in, in the culture only went as far as you know, what's in it for us mm. in the mind of the coloniser. It was something to be to be mined or or harvested and brought back to the homeland. And, you know, that's that was happening in Australia, you know, not that long ago. You know, the Vesties family that had all the big cattle stations, you know, in the centre of Australia. As soon as Aboriginal people, you know, in the um, in the seventies, there was a push for them to be paid an actual wage, and for those big stations to pay tax. Mm. Well, those British families packed up and went back to Britain <laughs> when that happened, mm. and I think that tells the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Australia. Have they started a formal process for reconciliation? Um, it's a very complicated uh, situation, really. Um, uh, we have a current debate going about a voice to parliament because when Australia was first settled, there was this there was this law of terra nullius. Yep. That claimed no one, there were no human inhabitants in Australia when the Europeans arrived. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And, and then, you know, there was a, 
the Marbo court case mm-hmm. threw that out. Well, this is still, I'm not sure of the year, 80s, was it, or 90s? 97. No. And so, you know, there's been no recognition of Aboriginal people existing. It was still in the mid-60s, 1967, that Aboriginal people were um, considered citizens of Australia and able to vote. But mm-hmm. before that, they were considered part of, you know, the natural flora and fauna right. of the country. Um, and so now we're, you know, it's it's always very laborious to to move this debate forward because there's so there's two hundred years of you know abuse and violence, you know, piled on top of those things now. But we are having a debate about, you know, leading up to a referendum later this year about enshrining in our constitution a voice for Aboriginal people, and that. Yeah. The, the idea is simply that to make it mandatory for any government to consult with Aboriginal people on legislation that will affect them. And, you know, it's quite a divisive issue, even within the Aboriginal community. You know, some people say, well, we still haven't got a treaty. We still haven't got any truth-telling process. Mm. You know, some of those things should come first before, you know, any changes to the Constitution. Um, but, you know, those arguments are still being put one way and the other, and we really don't know which way it's going to go at this time. Mm. But there is a there is certainly a part of the community that has for many, many, many decades, you know, been working for um, uh, a, a different kind of approach. Um, but, you know... Uh, we're, we're a country of migrants, yeah. But that's not the way, you know. People who have been here longer and have owned land in particular—that's not the way they see it. Right. They see it as the spoils of war or something that they perhaps would never put it in those terms. Yeah. And they're very frightened that to give, you know, rights back to. First Nations people, they would lose everything too. Yeah. That was the fear-mongering that was going around. But, of course, what we need to realise is that there's a different a different idea about ownership of country. You know, if you, you, know, you might own your house and the block um, that you live on, but that's not the way that... First Nations people in Australia see it. In fact, there isn't a concept of ownership. There's a concept of custodianship. Mm. And your your responsibility as a person coming from that country is to sing up, you know, the, you know, the increase ceremonies, you know, the singing up the and dancing the the life forces of that country so that it might prosper. And the animals and plants, you know, can increase in yeah. those in those places. And then you use, you know, a fire a fire regimes, cool fire regimes, along with um, the natural forces of wind and flood, to maintain that that uh, that country in its healthy state. And you know, um, in the seventies, Angelina. 
when I was really just becoming aware of environmental issues. Prior to that, I'd just seen it through farmers' eyes. Um, I was becoming aware of environmental um, issues, and there was this idea that natural country in its native state is one that is simply left alone. Mm-hmm. But working with, you know, people in the in the wet tropics and and the southern Riverina and Central Australia, I realised that's that's not so. The the human beings are part of our landscape. Mm-hmm. They their activities are part of, is is needed to keep you know country healthy. Uh, the cool burning or the um the you know there's many there's many cultural practices that actually give rise to um you know the country being more uh, productive if you like the way certain uh, mosaic burning you know maintaining you know um, open woodlands in some places and and uh, um, you know, Savannah and others, knowing that, you know, your kangaroos like the flats, like the flat country and the um, the Euros, the wallabies, they prefer wooded countries and, 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 and hillsides, you know. Mm-hmm. And so by simply managing the country in this way, largely through fire, um, cool fire, um, means that you have uh, you're actually husbanding. Funny word. Yeah. You're managing the country in a way that keeps, you know, your foods uh, uh, plentiful, really. Mm. And the burn, the cool burning, is what you know brings back the the herbs and the medicines mm. and all those plants. Uh, that otherwise would be taken over by, you know, trees or or grasses. And so there's this central idea, which, as I said, has um, I didn't realise until recently just how integrated human activity is is needed to maintain healthy country from a First Nations mm-hmm. worldview, but from the colonial worldview. It's just a resource. It's just something to go be dug up and, you know, let's have yeah. its gold or, or nickel yeah. or silver or something rather and we'll go and sell it and we'll make stuff and we'll accumulate wealth, mm-hmm. money wealth. Um, so there's these opposing opposing ideas, I guess, that are at the heart of our debate now about whether there should be a voice to parliament. Um uh, enshrined in our Australian constitution, and uh, and and there's there's certainly a will for that to happen now in a way that has never been before. Whether it's strong enough to win the day is too early to tell. Wow. Wow. Well, we're we're kind of going over the hour, and so I want to give you some time to just. Um, one of the questions I, I often ask guests is what do you want your legacy to be? Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> Angelina, I think uh, I'm only I'm only 69 this year, so I'm think you know I haven't had enough time to think about it. <laughs> You're just a young man. <laughs> <laughs> Still too young. No, yeah. um, um, you know, uh, uh, it's really the stories I I tell, you know, mm. and it's just the conversation that we've been having today really angelina right and, and we have such a an empty space in this country you know the for for so many people where you know in the past the stories of this place have been actively suppressed yep um hostility towards any of them being told and you know we're really a very insecure country in many ways, in spite of our sporting prowess and our terrific, you know, computer software coders and, you know, a whole lot of other great things about Australia. But at the heart of it, I feel that there's this longing to know who we are mm. as Australian people, you know. Yeah. As white Australian people and what that means for us as a nation of of migrants and First Nations people. Uh, and I guess, you know, you talk about legacy, you know, if I can contribute in some small way to that knowledge and experience and understanding, you know, that I'd be happy. I'd be happy with that, mm. I think. I mean, there's, uh, I know that, uh, uh, you know, legacy is a big thing for many people, um, you know, and, and spend a lifetime to put it in place. That has never really been very strong for me. Um, I, you know, live much more in the moment uh, yeah. and very little in the future. Right, right. In that sense. <clears throat> and uh, um, um, but, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm also recording some podcasts myself at the moment. Oh. People, for people who have been involved in community development. Mm -hmm. uh, it's our particular window that we're looking through. Um. And I have the opportunity to talk with people about, <clears throat> in the same way as in Two Brothers Walking, you know, what the turning points in their life was mm. and what they had learned from that and and the hero's journey. I, you know, yeah. didn't mention before, but, you know, Joseph Campbell's work and the hero with a thousand faces, you know, is really integral to this whole conversation for me. Yeah. in how we're all connected and we're the same and we have different stories to tell how we are the same, really. Mm. But those stories have the same structure and they're right. doing the same thing. Yeah, I'm quite and, familiar with uh, Joseph's, you know, the hero's journey. I, and yeah. I think we've exchanged, you know, emails on that previously when yes. I was trying to write my mum's story way back when, before she passed. But Definitely, I think you're doing your part. I mean, this documentary 
is brilliant. I really loved it. And it, it, I mean, I could, you know, especially the scenes like you, you mentioned earlier around the, the campfire and the, and even around the, the river, you know, when they were looking for the two women, mm-hmm. um, I could feel, I don't know if it's because I've been to Australia, but I could feel being there. I think you've done a really great job of, of the way the, the film was shot. And, um, and definitely, you know, when you're putting things on film like that, it lasts, mm. right? I mean, so that's going to be something that yeah. people will be able to look at and and see years down the road, you know? Yeah, um, yeah so you're yeah. right. I, I, um, I was looking at it, you know, recently again and, you know, I think it's 14 years now, something yeah. like that, since we released it, it, it still doesn't seem to be dated to me at all yeah and you know i've been i've been i was talking there to the best storytellers in the world yes and that they tell stories that last millennia Mm. and my only um regret if that's the right word Mm -hmm. was that you know there's such so much more in that in that um documentary that really isn't spelled out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might remember the story of being at the waterhole there, mm-hmm. the one at the waterhole, the, the rainbow serpent waterhole. Yeah. And, you know, I heard that story many times before I really had a strong sense of everything that was going on. And first of all, it was a cultural story and then it was a love story and then something else. And, then I understood they he was talking about shape shifting and yes. you know how the two brothers and two sisters, husbands and wives were the same as the rainbow serpent, you know. Yeah. yeah. They're all all together. And then <laughs> then it links in with John talking about, you know, being very sick in hospital. Yes. And being visited by the two spirit men, you know, saying, Boy, you've 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 got work to do. Mm. And it sort of taps into a world that is really in places you can see it if you know what to look for. Yeah. Um, but it's only hinted at, if you like. Mm. And I think for me that's the that's both the strength and the truth of the matter is that, you know, we we in this life we never know the full story, but we do get hints of it continually yeah. and we do keep putting pieces together yeah and uh that's a that's a great that's a great privilege you know to be in that position i think is to keep learning and uh, as we as we go through our life yeah yeah and i think the idea for me anyway as i you know when i think of the hero's journey and i think of my own journey i my intention as i move forward is to be curious, you know, and, and, you know, like remember when we were just little, how things Mm. would just blow our mind, you know, like it could be something so simple, but because we were so curious and looked at things as seeing them with new eyes, you know? And so that's, and when I, and I watched that documentary a few years ago, I think it was 2017 
And then when I watched it again, I got different things from it, you know, so because I was watching it with the intention of really looking at what you were trying to convey. And mm. I wanted to, I wanted to get from it what, you know, what you were seeing from the other side, you know, from the, the camera side, you know, on the other yes. side as the person looking for and emphasizing certain things in the documentary that you wanted people to uncover for themselves, you know, discover. And, yes. and you succeeded in that because I, the second time, you know, watching it years later, <laughs> it was like watching it new again. You yes. know? And, you know, no. but, you know, the mm. interesting thing is the song kept, I remembered those songs from yeah. watching it a few years ago. Like those songs were sounding really familiar to me again. And yes. it's so yeah. delightful. Well, you know, um, I was very much learning and discovering things for the first time when I was making that, uh, editing that, that film and shooting it. And I really didn't know. And I think that comes through in the film too. In uh, And I'm very grateful to have learned about, you know, the hero journey structure, mm. being able to put that into the film so that it, so that it, you know, keeps moving somewhere and stays alive. Mm. Um, and yes, you know, I have the same experience with it when I watch it again. Mm -hmm. I things that I see that I hadn't seen before because it's it's not actually all in the film. Half the experience, mm -hmm. more than half the experience is in our in ourselves, you know, what it's doing for us. Mm -hmm. And I was learning about things for the first time shooting it. And I think uh, and I, my hope is that, that 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 is there for, well, I guess that was part of the intention, you know, it was for people who like myself at the time, were learning things for the first time. It would be a way yeah. of making a first contact with First Nations Australian culture. Mm -hmm. Because we, we live here and we've been living side by side for 200 years, but for most people, they have yet to have first contact. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and... With your permission, I would like to put the link to the documentary in the podcast. Is that possible? Certainly, certainly. You can use that link. It's a that's an open link on ICTV there at yeah. the moment. And um, you know, we um, we attempted early in the piece to sort of uh, sell the film to a broadcaster. I suppose. Yeah. No one. No one was interested. And, ah. and uh and we uh because it doesn't fit the slots it's it doesn't fit the usual categories yes uh, it but it certainly has an audience and we're always reaching out you know mm -hmm. looking to that audience and and looking for a conversation that might follow uh viewing that film as we've had today angelina so yes you're most welcome but I want to thank you, for, you know, for the privilege of being on your your program here and speaking with you again. It's always a great pleasure. And um, yeah, thank you very much. All the best to you and your loved ones. All right. And but before we sign off, I just want to thank you for your time, your knowledge, and um, just being part of this conversation. 
You're most welcome, Angelina. Um, I'm, I look forward to, uh, you know, your podcast and uh, as you go forward and keep learning and keep that curiosity alive and, you know, keep satisfying it and at the same time it keeps, it keeps growing. It's a wonderful thing. Yes, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's all part of the journey. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs>